Good morning. Well, it's good to be with you and have this opportunity to open up God's holy and awesome word together. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us again briefly, and then we will open up God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp to our feet. It is a, a light to our path. We were dwelling in darkness, but now we have seen a great light, not only in the word made flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ, but in the word that you've spoken to us through him by the apostles and prophets. And so now we have this great and awesome treasure, this light for us in your word, but we need you to to shine that light in our lives today. We need you to guide us by that light today. And so we pray that as we open up Genesis 32, that you would be pleased to do that for your glory and our good. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, friends, I want you to go ahead and turn with me in your Bible to Genesis chapter 32. If you're using the Bible we've provided, you'll find the passage on page 27. And real quick, if you don't have a Bible of your own, we invite you to take the copy that we provided as a gift from us to you. There's nothing that we would want more than for you to have your own copy of God's Word to read for yourself. I want to encourage you to turn to the passage so that you can follow along as I read it, which I'll do in just a few moments. And I want to encourage you to keep your Bible open because we're going to look often at the passage in our time together. One of the major themes of the book of Genesis that we've been focusing on throughout our study in Genesis has been the tracing of the line of individuals through whom the Messiah would come. So back in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve sinned, God came to them and he cursed the serpent for tempting Adam and Eve to sin. God promised, as he was cursing the serpent, to send a seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head and in so doing would rescue mankind from sin. And from that point forward, we begin meeting the line of individuals through whom that seed, that Savior, would eventually come. And as we meet that line of individuals, it's as though God is simultaneously introducing us to that line and teaching us about the family traits that distinguish his seed, his children, from the seed of the serpent. I want you to think of some of the traits that we've seen thus far that characterize God's people. We've seen that his people call upon his name as they did in the days of Seth, who was of the offspring of the woman. We've seen that God's people walk in his ways. They obey his commands as Enoch did. We've seen that his people walk by faith and are willing to give up all to have him, as Abraham did. They trust God's promises, as Isaac did. We we see a growing portrait of of the family traits that distinguish God's children from the children of the serpent. And today, in our passage, we learn of other defining characteristics, other defining characteristics family traits. That should mark all of God's people. What are those traits? Well, let's go ahead and turn to the text to find out. I'm going to go ahead and read all of chapter 32 for us now. As I read, I encourage you to try to key in on what you think those traits are. You see if they match what I have come up with. Uh, And then after I read it, we'll look more closely at it. So Genesis chapter 32 This is God's word. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. 
and the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night. And from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong, where are you going, and whose are these ahead of you, then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau, and moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves, you shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, moreover, Your servant Jacob is behind us, for he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed the night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let go of me, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. If you're taking notes, there are four characteristics, four family traits that I want to point out, among others in this chapter, that should mark all of God's children. But before we get to those, I want to simply walk us through the text, explaining it as I go. Then we're going to consider how this passage is fulfilled in Jesus and in the gospel And then we're going to consider those four family traits that should mark those of us who follow Jesus. So let's go ahead and turn again to the text, starting back at the beginning of chapter 32. Chapter 32 picks up where chapter 31 left off. After 20 years of enduring trials at the hands of Laban, his uncle, Jacob fled Laban 
with his family and with all of his livestock. Laban pursued him and eventually overtook him. He intended to do Jacob harm, but God graciously intervened. And then Jacob and Laban made a covenant and agreement to never step foot in one another's land again. Jacob would never return to Haran, and Laban would never cross over into Canaan. And as chapter 32 opens, you can go ahead and look there with me at the first verses, Jacob is departing that covenant ceremony on his return to Canaan. And at some point along the way, he's met by angels of God. In verse 2, when Jacob sees the angels, he exclaims, this is God's camp. And he names the place Mahanaim, which means double camp or two camps, because it wasn't just his family that was camping there. They were met and ministered to by a camp of angels. Now, we we don't want to miss what's going on here in the overall storyline of Jacob's life. I think we need to remember that when Jacob fled the land of Canaan 20 years earlier, he had a staggering vision of a stairway to heaven. Can any of the kids tell me what we remember seeing on that stairway? Angels. Angels were ascending and descending on that stairway to heaven. And now here he is, 20 years later, returning to the land of Canaan. And who appears to him again but angels of God. It's as though God wants Jacob to know that throughout these 20 years, whether he has seen them or not, whether he has recognized it or not, God has been sending out his angelic hosts to protect and preserve Jacob. This was meant to encourage him that whatever trials may come in this next stage of his life, God would continue to protect and preserve Jacob. And Jacob would need that reminder, wouldn't he? Because hanging like a dark cloud over his return to the land of Canaan was the fact that Jacob knew he would have to face his brother Esau, right? The, the reason Jacob fled Canaan in the first place was because Esau wanted to kill him, right? In Genesis chapter 27, Jacob lied to his father Isaac and in the process stole his brother Esau's blessing. Esau then responded by starting to plot, plotting to murder Jacob. So Jacob's mom, Rachel, so, uh, uh, Rebecca says to him, you need to, you need to run, you need to flee from here. And so he flees from uh, Canaan to Haran. He is fleeing for his life. I mean, you gotta wonder how many times over the course of those 20 years, the memory of Esau plotting to murder him landed on him like a bolt of lightning. I don't know if you've ever been in a, in a, in a period of your life where some dark cloud hangs over it and you're able to live for a little while not thinking about that dark cloud, whatever it might be, but every once in a while it hits you like a bolt of lightning, like, oh, that, that dark cloud is still here. It, it hasn't dissipated. It's, it's far away on the distance, but at some point I am going to have to deal with this dark cloud. That, that is what it would have been like for Jacob over these 20 years. However much time may have worn away the memory of what Esau was plotting to do, Jacob knew eventually I'm going to have to face him. I'm going to see him. What is he going to say to me? Will he still be angry? Will he still want to kill me? It's clear those thoughts have been on his mind because in verses three through five, he sends messengers to Esau to tell Esau about how wealthy he had become in the hopes that he would find favor from Esau. Basically, Jacob is thinking, maybe if he hears about how wealthy I am, instead of killing me, he'll just decide to take some of my wealth, some of my livestock instead. Now, you've got to imagine that after Jacob sends messengers to Esau, that he spends the rest of the time pacing 
back and forth, day in and day out, waiting for their return, waiting for their response. Right? Have you ever, have you ever been awaiting big news in your life, whether good or bad? Right? What happens? You can't sit still. You can't hold a conversation. Just kind of constantly thinking about this news that's coming back to you. Your mind races. You check your, your cell phone constantly. Did they call? Did they text? Is my phone on silent? Is it, 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 do I need to turn the volume up on the ringer? You check your email. You start asking, maybe they've called a landline, but you don't have a landline. Yeah, but maybe I actually do have a landline, and they somehow got a hold of the number, and they've called that landline, and I just, I don't know. Or you start thinking, just, you're constantly thinking about what is this news, this big news? What, what message is coming back to me? Jacob's thinking, how is Esau going to respond? What will the return message be? And finally, the messengers re- return, and the news is terrible. Look at what, what the messengers say in verse 6. We came to your brother Esau. Put yourself in Jacob's shoes. And, 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 what did he say? What did he say? And he's coming to meet you. He's what? He's coming to meet me with 400 men. What? Well, you, you got to imagine at this point, he just starts panicking entirely. 400 men was the common size of a fighting company in the ancient Near East. And we even saw Abraham in Genesis 14. When he went to war, he took a very similar-sized company of men to battle. It sounds like Esau is coming and coming to make war, which is why verse 7 tells us Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He was losing it. So much so that in verses seven and eight, he thinks he's gonna die. He he decides to divide up everything he has. All the people and all the animals, he divides into two camps so that if Esau attacks one of the camps, at least the other one would live. And then Jacob does the wisest thing he could have done at a time like this probably the thing that he should have done before he divided up his people. He prays. Look at verses 9 to 12. Jacob calls on the name of God. Oh, God of Abraham, God of Isaac. He reminds God of all his promises. And then he asks God to make good on those promises. God, you promised to do good to me. You promised to give me the land of Canaan and you promised to give me countless offspring. But it sounds like Esau is coming to kill me. How on earth will those promises come come true? I'm calling on you now to make good on your promises to me. Then after he prays, I'm not sure how we're supposed to think about what he does next, whether this is good or bad, but he comes up with another plan. In verses 13 to 21, You can look there with me. He comes up with a plan to give a gift, a present to his brother. He takes roughly 600 animals. He divides them up into smaller groups, gives them to his servants, and then has the servants go to Esau in stages with the gifts of livestock. When the first servant arrived, he was to tell Esau that these animals were a gift from Jacob and that Jacob was coming behind them. So that when Esau said, wait, where, where is he behind me? They could point back and say, see that big group coming this way? Jacob is coming with them. So when Esau looked in the distance, he would assume Jacob was in that group that was coming. But then when that group arrived, he would find another servant accompanied by another large flock of animals that were given as a gift from Jacob. These are from Jacob, and Jacob is coming. One group would go, two groups would go, three groups would grow, and then all the groups would go. It's possible that there were six to ten different groups like this. Jacob's hope here was to wear him down with kindness, right? Perhaps if I give him enough gifts, he won't kill me. That's what Jacob is thinking, right? And in verse 21, we read that the animals went ahead of him, and he stayed that night in the camp but it appears it was a sleepless night for Jacob. Look at verse 22. 
that same night, he arose. And whether this is out of terror and fear, we don't know. He took his wives, servants, and children, and in the middle of the night, sent them across a river. The text uses the word stream, but this was a large river, large enough that it had a ford in it that they had to cross the ford of this river to get across to the other side. In verse 24, we read, and Jacob was left alone. Alone in the wilderness, alone in the dark. To feel the significance of this event in Jacob's life, right? Think back again, 20 years earlier, as he fled the land of Canaan on the run from Esau, he found himself all alone in the dark of the night in the wilderness. And what happened to him there? He had a powerful encounter with God. And now, 20 years later, as he returns to the land of Canaan to face Esau, he finds himself alone in the dark of the night in the wilderness where he has another powerful encounter with God. Look at verse 24 again. Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. I don't know about you, but I'm not sure if when you read those words, you grasp how utterly bizarre this is. This is nuts. He's in the dark, all alone in the wilderness, And out of nowhere, a man appears and wrestles him. This is bizarre. This is not normal. Uh, I used to watch uh, WWF. I liked it at one point in my life. Don't hold it against me. My favorite wrestler was a guy named Goldberg. And Goldberg was a former football player. He was awesome. He did this thing where he like made this crazy uh, uh, face where he would like scream and grab the ropes and his traps would flex and they would just get all gigantic and huge. But Goldberg was always known for when he would appear in the ring, he would appear out of nowhere. So his opponent would be in the ring like doing what they do in the WWF, like making a big show of things. He'd be laughing and, you know, talk flexing and talking about how great of a wrestler he is. And then the camera would pan and you'd think, oh my gosh, Goldberg's in the ring and he doesn't even know it. And then he would turn and Goldberg would be in a three-point stance because he played football prior to becoming a wrestler. And he would pull off his special move, which was the spear if you remember Goldberg, it was amazing. He would just lay into people, fly, like fly towards them full speed, and boom, just crush them. Right, like that is a little bit of what's going on here. The man appears out of nowhere and wrestles Jacob. This isn't the type of wrestling, if you have sons, that you do with your sons where it's like, Oh, you got me, and oh, you let, you let them beat on you for a little bit, and then you take them, and you kind of wrestle them, but you have to be careful because you don't want to hurt them, right? This is not that. This is full-blown wrestling, like bordering on assault. This is vigorous beating down that is going on here, right? This is what's going on. He's grabbing, pulling, wrenching, twisting, And this wrestling match lasted for hours. Look at verse 24 again. The man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. This went on for hours. If you've ever taken a kickboxing class or a boxing class or an MMA class, you know how unbelievably exhausting this would have been. Wrestling Fighting induces a unique exhaustion that has the power to drain you of every single last drop of energy. That's why, that's why you see boxers and fighters in the later rounds of hard fights just laying on each other, just 
bro, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hug you for a little bit, you hug me, and we're gonna catch our breath for a little bit. And that's after like 30, 40 minutes at most. This is going on for hours. God wrestled Jacob all night until finally the man saw that he did not prevail over Jacob, not that Jacob won, but that Jacob wouldn't let go, wouldn't give up, right? He couldn't get Jacob off of him. At one point uh, a, a few years ago, we had a pest issue in a house that we lived in. There was a rat. Whoa, terrible, right? And so I went to the store, got one of those big rat traps, the sticky ones, uh, and I made the mistake of after popping it open, I was yanking too hard on it, my hand got stuck in it. And like the thing is legit, it's sticky. It's just, I was flinging, flicking, and it just wouldn't come off. That is, that is what Jacob is doing with the Lord. He is getting wrestled, tossed, tussled, bent, twisted every which way, and he is not letting go. Right? That's what's happening here. Jacob just kept hanging on. And so the man touched his hip and dislocated it. If we have any questions about the man's ability and power to overcome Jacob, this dispels it. With a single touch, he dislocates the largest and densest, densest bone structure in the entire body. This would have been brutally painful. And yet, Jacob still holds on. Look at verse 26. After he dislocates his hip, the man says, let me go. Jacob's like, no, no, I, I won't let you go. I won't let you go until you bless me. Yes, I may be in excruciating pain, but I am not letting go until you bless me. But Jacob recognizes that this isn't any old man. This is God in the flesh. The man asks Jacob's name then, forcing Jacob to come to terms with what his name means, right? He says, Jacob, my name is Jacob. I am the heel grabber. I am the cheater. I am the deceiver. But God essentially says to him, not anymore, you're not. He gives Jacob a new name. Your name is now Israel, which means one who strives with God, one who clings to God, one who hangs on to God. In verse 30, Jacob acknowledges that he had just seen God face to face and been delivered from it. And in verse 31, as the sun rose, he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. And as a result of this event and the sacredness of it, Moses tells us that the people of Israel don't eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because God touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Right, so significant was this event for God's people that it forever changed the customs of an entire nation, which is interesting because we know that in Israel, certain meals and certain customs involving food were to be accompanied by sober reflection and explanation. Think of the Passover meal. Whenever Israelites celebrated the Passover, the older generations were to explain to the younger generations why they celebrated the Passover and what all the elements of the meal meant. They did this so that each generation would know that it was by the blood of the lamb that God passed over their homes and brought them out of slavery in Egypt. And as they celebrated, they were all to reflect on the fact that their freedom, however many generations removed from the Exodus generation they were, was a result of God's miraculous deliverance of them. In much the same way, this practice of not eating the meat of the hip socket called for explanation and reflection. 
when younger generations asked why they shouldn't eat the meat of the hip. The older generations were to tell them that it was because God had touched Jacob's hip. And when the children inevitably asked why God touched Jacob's hip, as children are so gifted to do, to ask wonderful why questions, the older generations were to tell them that it was because God dislocated Jacob's hip. Because when God wrestled Jacob all night long, Jacob clung to God and would not let him go. That is why we do not eat the meat of the hip. And when the children inevitably asked why God did that and what that all means, the older generations were to tell them that Jacob's dislocated hip and their practice of not eating the meat of the hip reminded them of the fact that in wrestling with God, Jacob abandoned his scheming and conniving ways. He abandoned his self-sufficiency and clung only to God. It reminded them that at times God would wrestle with them. And when he did that, he would bring them through suffering and pain and sorrow and anguish. And it might seem like it lasts a, long, a, a, a lifetime, but through it all, they should cling to him and not let go. It was to remind them that God would humble them, causing them to limp through various sufferings. But that humbling was to remind them of their utter dependence on God. When the people of Israel didn't eat the meat of the hip, they were getting a lesson in the family traits that should mark God's children. God's children were to be those who forsake self-sufficiency, who recognize that their only hope is in God and who cling to God alone. But we know that as we read the rest of the Old Testament, the vast majority of the nation of Israel didn't learn that lesson. They lived in fear not of Esau, but of the surrounding nations. They didn't entrust themselves to God's protection. And rather than entrusting themselves to God's protection and calling on God in prayer, they tried to scheme their way out of trouble by using political alliances and things like that. They trusted in their own wisdom. They clung to idols rather than to God. They proudly and boldly sought to live by their own strength. So God cast them out of the land of Canaan. Because the picture of Jacob walking back into the land under the glorious sunlight is to show us that the promised land that God gives to his people is only for those who limp. It is not for those who live in prideful self-sufficiency. He sent them into exile among the nations where they remained for 400 years. And while many Israelites turned away from God at this time, abandoned God, some clung to him in faith. When everything around them told them there was no reason to cling anymore, they continued clinging to God in faith, asking for God to fulfill his promises to Jacob, asking for God to bless them by sending a savior who would crush the serpent and rescue them from sin. And God, as he did with Jacob, looked upon their clinging to him in faith with favor. He blessed them by sending the son of God and seed of the woman, the true Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to crush the serpent and rescue God's people from sin. You gotta love that scene when Jacob is finally born. I think it's Simeon, maybe Zechariah, one of the two. When he sees him, he, he says, I can go to sleep now. I can die now because your promise has come. I have been clinging my whole life and the promise is here. Your plan of redemption is here. You are a God who keeps his promises. He had been clinging his whole life, had no reason to, but he finally found out that God was worthy of his trust because God kept his promises to send Jesus. You see, Jesus is the one who truly wrestled with God. Not like Jacob, who only wrestled for a night. Jesus wrestled with God every day of his life. 
Every moment of his life, Jesus clung to God and never let him go. He wrestled with God as he endured Satan's attacks in the wilderness. He wrestled with God as he faced the murderous plots of the Pharisees. He wrestled with God and with the difficult will of God in the Garden of Gethsemane. Oh God, let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. I'm going to cling to you in this moment. And at every step along the way, as he wrestled with God, Jesus clung to God. And he clung to God all the way to the cross, where he endured the agonizing and terrifying culmination of wrestling with God. On the cross, he wrestled with the wrath of God, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you don't think that you can cling to God and have questions about what he's doing in, in your life, you can. Jesus has experienced that on his own. Why have you forsaken me yet clinging? All of his bones were dislocated. Not just one. On the cross, the outcome of his wrestling wasn't the mere dislocation of a hip. But what does he say about his experience on the cross in Psalm 22? I am poured out like water and all of my bones are out of joint. All of his bones were dislocated on the cross. His body was flogged. His hands and feet were pierced. A spear was driven through his side. But through it all, he clung to God. And through Jesus's Faithful clinging to God on the cross, he prevailed over sin, death, Satan, and hell. He crushed the serpent and freed us from the reign of sin and death in our lives, and he offers to all who turn to him in faith the gift of the Holy Spirit and his transforming work in our lives. He offers to us forgiveness of sin and freedom from sin's power in our lives. And all who turn to him in faith become one with Jesus. The church, now identified with her Savior, Paul says, is the Israel of God, according to Paul in Galatians 6. And since we've been united to God's Son, we should begin bearing the family traits of those who belong to God's family. There are a few family traits that characterize God's people that I want us to briefly consider before we draw to a close. There are a number of things that we can say about following Christ from this passage, but there are a few that I want us to consider. The first trait of God's family that I want us to consider from this passage is that God's people should entrust themselves to God's protection. God's people should entrust themselves to God's protection. That's the significance of Jacob's encounter with the angels at the beginning of the chapter. Right, Just as the angels ascending and descending on the staircase to heaven showed that God was sending out his ministers to protect Jacob on his journey in Haran, so their appearance here proved that God was still protecting Jacob and would during this next stage of his life as he faced Esau. The presence of angels communicated God's protective presence to Jacob, to which Jacob should have responded with entrusting himself to God. In the same way, friends, we can entrust ourselves to God's protection. Right? Think about the scene with Elijah and his serpent, servant. Elijah's servant was panicking because an army of Arameans had surrounded the city of Israel. Elijah's like, I'm not bothered whatsoever. And the servant, why are you not bothered? Why are you not freaking out? He's like, because we have more on our side than they have on their side. And the servant looks around. He's like, I don't see any army. And Elijah's like, Lord, would you please open my servant's eyes? And the Lord answers his prayer. And what does the servant see? But the hills are covered with the angels of the Lord. They're protecting them on God's behalf. This is why Psalm 91 promises that God will command his angels to guard his people in all their ways. And why the author of Hebrews says that angels are ministering spirits, spirits sent for the sake of God's elect. And because we know that God's ministers are bringing about the fulfillment of God's promises in our lives, we can and should entrust ourselves to God's protection. 
Right now, we may not have visions of angels or be met by angels like Jacob, but the reality remains that God is presently protecting us through his ministers. I love FBI-type shows, right? Some of my favorite scenes in those shows are when one of the characters are provided undercover and undercover entourage, right? Maybe they're going to meet a criminal mastermind in some public park and they're on their way and it doesn't look like anyone is there to protect them. They go to meet the criminal mastermind and then he tries to pull a fast one on the person who's gone to meet them and they're like, go, go, go. And then you notice like all the people that were in the park surrounding them that we thought were normal citizens, boom, these are actually all agents there on behalf of the character who is being attacked. Friends, in the same way, we, might, we may not be able to see it. I, I, I get that, but, but the Lord is clear in his word. God sends out his ministering spirits for the sake of the elect, and one of the things that they do is protect his people. God is with you. In whatever situation you may be fearing, God is with you. God will protect you. God's entourage surrounds us and keeps us. He has sent his ministering spirits to serve for the sake of his people, and one of the things that they do for us is protect us. I wonder what's causing you to fear today. God has promised to protect you. Are you facing an uncertain future? Opposition from other people, right? Jacob doesn't trust in God's protection. He becomes greatly afraid and distressed He should have remembered that God was with him. The angels were just with me. In the same way, we can very easily forget that. We can be reminded, yes, God protects me, and then walk out these doors, and we're like, no, we're greatly distressed and afraid by all that's going on in life, but we don't need to be. God is with us. He blesses us and keeps us. Whether you're facing difficulty at home, a scary diagnosis, whatever it is, whatever trial you're facing now or will face in the future, God has committed himself to your preservation so that whatever you face in life or death, you would know that God will protect you. He will bless you. He will keep you. So you and I can entrust ourselves to God's protection. One of the ways that we do that is the second trait I want us to consider. God's people should call out to God in prayer. Surprise, surprise, right? Wow, what an idea. Gosh, Jacob, great. You finally lifted up your voice to the Lord and prayed. In the midst of his fear, Jacob does the wisest thing he's done yet in his life. He prays to God in verses 9 to 12, calls upon God. From the very beginning, God's people have been marked by calling upon God in prayer. We should notice the the way that he prays and how that serves as a framework for how you and I can pray. He simply calls on God to keep his promises. You promised to give me offspring. You promised to give me the land. You promised to bless me and protect me. Now I'm calling on you to do those things. Friends, that is in part what prayer is. Prayer is calling on God to keep his promises. God, you promised to sanctify me. And now I'm calling on you to do that. Help me to put off anger. Help me to put off lying and lust and envy and gossip. And all the other ways I may be struggling. God, you promised to provide a way out of temptation for me. And now I'm facing the temptation to lash out at someone who's bothering me, to become impatient, to doubt your goodness, to doubt your sovereign power. So, so provide a way out of temptation for me now. God, you promised to never let me go, but I, I feel prone to wander, prone to leave you the God I love. I'm being drawn away from you. Keep me and hold me. God, you promised to save through the preaching of your word. We pray that you would build up your church today according to your word. In prayer, we call on God to keep his promises. And our prayer life is a good gauge of our maturity in the faith, isn't it? That's what it seems to be here. Jacob is clearly growing. This is the first time we've heard of him praying. It's actually the longest prayer in Genesis. I think the frequency with which we turn to God in prayer is a clear indication of how much we're growing in the faith, right? Growth in the faith will be accompanied by an increasing tendency to turn to God in prayer. If that's discouraging to you, let me say, I know, because it's discouraging to me as well. I look at my prayer life and I see way too much room for growth. And I often think the reason for it is I forget who it is I'm talking to. 
the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the Lord who stands over the stairway to heaven, the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth has made himself available to you and me at all times. So while prayer is certainly a duty, we should do it. We should, we should approach our prayer life as a delight, as in, I get to pray. I get to talk to God. For the teens here, I want you to imagine you had a friend who could call Harry Styles. I'm just guessing here. I'm not sure if that's actually the right person to, to use uh, for this illustration. Imagine they could call Harry Styles or Taylor Swift whenever they want, but they, and they talked about it around you as like, ugh, I've got to call Harry again. Wants me to check in. Got to call Taylor again. She demands so much that I call her, right? You'd be like, that's crazy. I want to talk to them, right? Do you know who you get to talk to in prayer? The sovereign Lord of all the, the universe. God has turned his ear to us, his children. And we should call on him in prayer. The third characteristic I want to briefly highlight is that God's people have been transformed. Made new, new creatures, new creations. That's what God is communicating when he gives Jacob the new name. Not that Jacob was being saved in that moment. I think that happened when God called him in Genesis chapter 28. But that God here was confirming the transforming work of his power in Jacob's life. Friends, if you're here and you don't follow Jesus, we are thankful you're here. And I just want to point out that this is one of the most wonderful realities of the Christian life. In salvation, in turning to faith in Jesus, God transforms people who turn in faith to him. God makes them new creatures, new creations. He gives us a new heart with new desires. He renews our minds and fills us with his very own spirit so that we would increasingly walk in his ways. He takes people like Jacob, whose name means deceiver, and turns him into Israel, someone who clings to God. And he can do the same thing in your life. God can wash you. God can make you new. He can take those who were slaves to sin and make his very own children, and he'll do that for you today if you would turn and put your faith in Jesus Christ. You may be thinking, there's no way that I can change who I am. You're right. You can't, but God can. And if you turn to him in faith, he promises that he will. And for all who've trusted in Christ, we need to remember that God has made us new. Of all the name changes in the Bible, Jacob's is far and away the most interesting. Because of all the name changes, his is known for switching back and forth, depending on how he was doing. If he was walking in his old ways, he was called Jacob. If he was walking in the new ways by trusting God, he was called Israel. And the same thing is true for the nation of Israel. If you read through the rest of the Old Testament, when they are struggling with sin, God says to them, oh, Jacob, when they are walking in God's ways, oh, Israel. You see there the battle that the new creature has. God has made us new, fully justified, yay, amen, right? Sanctified, all of that. God has done the work. You have been justified. But within the new creature, there is a battle going on. We battle against Jacob while we seek to live like Israel, right? That's why we're called to put off the old self and to put on the new, to die to our old ways, and to come alive in Christ Jesus. Day in and day out, you are fighting a battle. God has transformed you, and now he calls you to engage in that battle every day by walking by faith, by putting off the old and putting on the new. God has made you a saint in Christ Jesus, and he has empowered you to live like saints in Christ Jesus. And you might, you might uh, uh, come alongside Paul here who says, you know, who, when he's struggling with sin, who, who will deliver me from this body of death? He then says, praise be to God, who gives us the victory through Christ Jesus our Lord. There is a struggle, there is a battle, but there's a day coming when he will free you from that struggle. And all that would be left is Israel in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. God's people have been transformed. And finally, God's people should cling to God and not let go. 
If you're thinking about following Jesus, especially kids, I want y'all to think about this. As you're thinking about following Jesus, you should not think that if I follow Jesus, everything will get easier. No, God will appear and he will wrestle with you. He will take you through difficulty in life. That can be one of the things that's so bewildering about coming to follow Jesus. I thought everything was gonna get better from here on out. Things get harder. Jesus says, be prepared for suffering if you follow me. But what Jacob's example teaches us here is that through the wrestling, through the suffering, through the sorrow, we should cling to God and not let go. When I wrestle with Jack and Knox at home, I always love, love to pin them down, to pull their arm back, wrench them around, bash them into one another, all of that fun stuff. I don't hurt them, but it's just fun dad and son stuff. And one of the things that Knox used to do when he was a little bit smaller is he, he found kind of the cheat code. He would jump on my leg, my lower leg, and he would wrap his arms and legs around it super tight. And I just, get, 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 and like couldn't get him off. I'd walk around the house, kind of like this, the dragging him behind me. And he would just look up at me smiling. Friends, the, there are gonna be seasons where where God brings you through that are just very difficult. All sorts of trials, all sorts of sorrows, all sorts of pain, right? But through it all, you should do what Knox did to me. Hold on tight. Keep clinging to God because what the passage shows us is that God blesses those who do. It's after he sees that Jacob will not let him go that he blesses him. He dislocates his hip, but that was only so that Jacob would continue to depend on him the rest of his life. That as Jacob limped into the promised land, he would remember every limping step he took, God is good, God keeps his promises, God calls me to live in utter dependence on him. And whatever hardships he's put in your life, those are reminders for you also to keep clinging to God. Because the good news for you and me is that one day that dark night will end. One day, that wrestling will end, and you and I won't walk limping into the new heavens and new earth. We will run, we will, we will run leaping and jumping and praising God and clinging fast to him forever. That's what God is doing in us today, friends. Keep going. Keep walking by faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd empower us today to cling fast to you, to hold on to you, and to never let go. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.